Welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, a wrestling history podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 106 with my guest, John Langmead, the author of the brand new book, Ballyhoo, the Roughhousers, Con Artists, and Wild Men Who Invented Professional Wrestling. I'll get to that conversation in just a minute. Can't wait to share it with you. Before we get to that, a couple of things that I just wanted to go over at the top of the show. First of all, and this is kind of a localized thing, but for people in the Connecticut area, maybe the New York tri-state area, if you're within reasonable driving distance, I'd invite you to come down to Lethal Leap Year. It's a special independent wrestling event being put on by Blood, Sweat, and Tears Wrestling which is a Bridgeport, Connecticut-based independent wrestling outfit that is run by a very good friend of mine who I've mentioned occasionally here on the show, and that would be Lucas Chase, a graduate of the Dustin Rhodes Rhodes Wrestling Academy and uh, a fine, fine wrestler in his own right. I'm going to be at the show as a special guest commentator. Now, it's taking place at Devonshire Hall, in Hamden, Connecticut, and that's going to be the evening of Friday, March 1st. If you'd like to find out more about it, you can Google Blood, Sweat, and Tears Wrestling, or you can go to Twitter, BST underscore wrestling, to find out more about that event and more about Blood, Sweat, and Tears Wrestling in general. I'll also be selling signed copies of Blood and Fire at the event. So if you're around, if you're in the area, If you dig independent wrestling, you want to come down and say hi, please do. Now, also want to talk briefly about Irresistible Force, the life and times of Gorilla Monsoon. I'm thrilled because I am now actually in the professional wrestling portion of the book. I'm working on Chapter 5, which is called Gino, and focuses on his years, Gorilla's years, as a pro wrestler in the early 60s, when he first broke into the business before he made it to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, which is a very um, sort of little-known and little-discussed part of Gino's career. So I think you're going to find that chapter fascinating. I know I'm having a great time writing it, so I hope you're going to enjoy it when it's all done. Now, speaking of books, my guest this week has written, shall we say, a humdinger of a book. Now, I'm going to get into this in the conversation that I had with John, but One of my favorite areas of wrestling history is really the early 20th century. Let's say, I guess, the pre-television era I'm fascinated by. And one of the reasons I'm fascinated by it is that you can't always have informed conversations about that. It's not as easy as, let's say, if you want to talk about, you know, uh, wrestling in the 1980s or whatever. 
So whenever I, I find someone knowledgeable, someone who's really written on the subject, a historian or a writer who wants to talk about this portion of wrestling history, I jump at the opportunity. So this is a really deep dive. We really get into detail here on some of the greats of the era like Gus Sonnenberg, Joe Stecker, Frank Gotch, Jack Curley, Toots Mon, Strangler Lewis, on and on and on, Jim Londis. So if that is your thing, you are going to love this week's episode. You're going to love this week's conversation, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago on the show, I mentioned a book that I had been made aware of and that had been sent to me. The book's called Ballyhoo, The Roughhousers, Con Artists, and Wild Men Who Invented Pro Wrestling. And it's a book all about the earlier history, the early years. I mean, when we talk about the history of wrestling, we're talking about the foundations here. Late 19th and specifically the early 20th century history of pro wrestling focusing especially on the life of promoter Jack Curley, who, as we'll talk about today in so many ways, was one of the godfathers of professional wrestling. So this week on the show, I'm very pleased to have with me the author of that book, John Langmead. John, thank you so much for being a guest on Shut Up and Wrestle. Thank you, Brian. I couldn't be happier to be here. Thank you very much. This is a great excuse for me because this topic, this area, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And the whole thing about it is finding the right people to talk about it with. Anybody, I could talk to whoever I want on this show about 80s and 90s WWF, about ECW, about Ric Flair and these kind of things. But I mean, if I want to talk about Evan Strangler Lewis and Ray Fabiani and Professor Thebaud Bauer and Dr. Benjamin F. Roller and people like that. There is a short supply of people that I can get on here to do it with. And you, this book was like manna from heaven and I'm engrossed in it as we speak. I mean, last night I was just, I went to bed way later than I should have last night. I'm exhausted. I feel terrible. And it's thanks to you and this book, John. Well, that could make me happier to hear that. Yeah, it's definitely pretty. Um, it's, pre it's it's a pretty uh, small group of people here that 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 can actually talk about these things, and an even smaller number, I think, that that have most of their facts right. Although it's hard to get any of the facts right in this stuff. But I will quickly. I'll start off by saying, uh, getting to talk to the people who were really responsible for tracking this stuff down, because this history kind of doesn't exist by it's not an accident that this stuff exists. I mean, there were a handful of people, and I'm sure we'd probably know a lot of the same ones who um, very consciously went out there and built it and found it and tracked it down and organized it and getting to talk to them and getting to know them has been the absolute best experience of the past probably 10 years of my life. So I, I, I love all of them and they were all a blast to talk with. Steve Yoey specifically is incredible. And I noticed that you dedicated the book to him. You know, people that are into wrestling history, they know Steve, and I interviewed him uh, for one of my books, Pro Wrestling FAQ, and he's just a literal walking encyclopedia. But Steve, you know, Steve's an older guy, and he doesn't really have a public persona. So he sort of, to a lot of fans, is just sort of like a name, you know, and nothing more. But the work he's done is incredible, and I think he 
deserves more recognition. I would love to have him on this show. I don't even know if he does podcasts or anything. Yeah, I don't know if he. I'm not sure if he does either. He's a uh, he's a character, and so the fun, the funny thing about Steve is, I think I think some people think he's like this cantankerous troll or something that lives away. But man, when you get to talk to him, the guy like I mean, bring up Joe Stecker with with Steve, and and you'll have the conversation of your life. And he couldn't be, and, and it really it goes like I said, the same goes for all of those guys. Mark Hewitt, Tim Hornbaker, Greg, all of them, Steve Johnson, all those guys. You can call any of them at the drop of the hat. They love talking about this stuff. And if you know what you're talking about, and I think if you contribute to the community and the work they're doing, they're happy to bring people in and happy to to, to talk with anybody. It's the it's really the best. They're all the best. That's the thing. They want to make sure that you know your stuff and you know what you're talking about. You know, I got to hang out a little bit with Mark Hewitt and um also the late Don Luce, who I was honored to just be able to sit and pick his brain. I went a couple of years at the at the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in Albany and to just sit there in the hotel lobby and just talk to him about George Hackenschmidt and all these crazy things. And, you know, Tom Burke, who I've been to his house a few times, just the, the man lives in, an, in a wrestling museum, you know, he does and he these does. people, these people are treasures. They're treasures to me. They really are treasures. And I and I um. I think I hope I did a good job of, of of acknowledging my death to them because I definitely I think they deserve a lot more attention. And I think the history of wrestling deserves a lot more attention um, as a part of American sports culture, popular culture, all that stuff. I mean, it's really something we take for granted. And I think that that was something I was hoping with the book to kind of pull some of it together, put it in kind of hopefully a organized, really hopefully entertaining um, fashion, but but so much of the research was built on what those guys have all been doing over the past fifty years. And the guy we should probably mention too, who isn't who isn't with us anymore. And I never got to meet him, although I did an email with him. Was J. Michael Kenyon, who everybody talks a lot about, yes. as sort of the godfather of all this. And uh, apparently, in his day, for anybody who's interested in him, Steve Johnson actually wrote a great obituary on him on slam wrestling uh he was a sports correspondent for the supersonics i think up in seattle when the supersonics were like the yes. expansion team or whatever back in the 70s and he apparently he was one of these kind of gonzo journalists back in the late 60s 70s who you know the stories were often as much about his annex as the uh the athletes yeah he was like one of those colorful sports writers that would just like almost become the story themselves and i um i had brief dealings with him towards the very end of his life when I was working on pro wrestling FAQ about 10 years ago, we had a couple of email correspondences. His health was very bad at that time. And really I wasn't able to, there wasn't much that came of it, you know, but I really would have loved to have spoken more um, in depth with him, but he was, he was just not in good shape at that time and just not in, not in good spirits, just not, not the right time at all to, to be right. talking to him, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, I, I, you know, with that generation and, and um, there was also guy, I mean, guys like Fred Hornby, who I, they were way, way before me, who kind of laid some of the foundation for some of this work. Um, but yeah, uh, J. Michael, yeah, I think he lived fast and he lived, lived awful hard. And I think he got as much out of life as you can, can get out of it from what I understand. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Joe Stecker and I want to go back to that briefly, because one of the things I love about the book is that you re first of all, it's very it's annotated, which I always like that. I always pop for that. That will appeal to me. It's it's very um, I don't want to say scholarly because that almost sometimes puts people off to a book. I'm not trying to say it's dry or anything, but it's very uh, it takes the subject very seriously. And you're interested in debunking slash illustrating or developing 
even some of the urban legends and stories that we hear. Like there's a story that I've heard a bunch of different ways, and I think it maybe started from Luthez's book. It's the famous story. I love this story where basically they go and visit Joe Stecker, who's like this middle-aged man in a mental asylum, and he just stretches all the young wrestlers like it's nothing, you know, including Thez himself, who was the world champion at the time. And I've heard a few different versions of that story. And the one in the book is so interesting because what I what I didn't know from reading this version is it wasn't just Thez. It was like a few different guys because I remember hearing a version where basically Strangler Lewis, who, of course, was friends long time with Stecker and enemies and everything else, said, I'm going to take you to visit Joe. Let's go see him. And it was just the three of them. But this makes it seem like it was a much more elaborate kind of thing. And just I think they were they weren't even at the home, right? They were in another location, weren't they? That's the, in the story that, that Luthez tells in Hooker. Yeah, I think they go to actually they, they get are able to get Joe. And I think for anybody who doesn't know. Um, so Joe Stecker at the time was the um, heavyweight champion in the 1920s, um, but fell on pretty hard times um financially i think during the great depression and some different and it's not totally clear what happened there i did briefly speak with his daughter um but there that he had a really rough go there was very likely some mental illness that was going on although obviously we you know he didn't leave any papers behind or anything like that so we don't know for sure what was going on but he ended up in the veterans hospital uh institutionalized for most of his life and most of the, the second half of his adult life uh but lived a long life i think he lived into his early 80s i forget exactly the date but at one point in another his brother tony who was um the wrestling promoter up in in minnesota um took Thez. this is a story again at least that Thez tells it's took Thez and a couple other guys and they actually took were able to get joe out of the home for the day and they went to like a local gym and joe destroyed all the guys now i think with all the stories in the book some of this stuff you don't always know how much of it's apocryphal and how much of it's a hundred percent actually you know accurately true i think i really tried to lean on um sourcing stuff where i could um, you know, if stuff flatly felt incorrect, I, I left it out. I think if it had a ring of truth, I think I, I was willing to kind of trust the source a little bit, you know, um, for, especially for a story like that. And I will say, too, I appreciate what you said. I really did try hard with the kind of the tone of the book. Um, I wanted I didn't I didn't want an academic, um, even though it's on an academic press. I really wanted hard for this to be a book or I really wanted for this book to be something um, even like non-wrestling fans could pick up and hopefully get all the way through it um, and bring these guys to life a little bit. Cause even myself as like a, as a fan, I would hear Joe Stecker. I'd hear these names. I'm like, huh? Like, why do I care about this? But like, I think as the more I dug into it and learned about these guys as people, uh, I was just so interested in it, really all of them. And so that was really the goal of the book. And I hope I accomplished that. And I do hope that people find, you know, they can get through it. And it's, that's an, hopefully an entertaining read. Well, I think it is. And, you know, it's interesting to me because like we've talked about, I've talked about a lot on here, you know, wrestling history needs to be preserved. Otherwise it goes away, especially from this era. Uh, and again, to reiterate for people that aren't familiar yet with the book. So the focus of the book kind of starts at the tail end of the 19th century or the later decades, and then really focuses on the first, let's say three or four decades of the 20th century. And it's told, even though it starts way before Jack Curley's even involved in the business, or I think even born, it's really kind of interwoven 
around him as the central figure, Jack Curley. And again, for people that don't know, another reason why I love the concept of this book. And I love how you market it because, look, the fact of the matter is Jack Curley is not first and foremost on people's lips in the year 2024. So if you just said, hey, here's the biography of Jack Curley, you might have had a lot less luck. I'd buy it. I'd buy 10 copies. But, but you know, uh, positioning it in this way where it's more like here's the history of the of wrestling in that era but revolving around this central figure now jack curley again was you know before the mcmahons before even tutsmond jack curley was the man in wrestling in new york specifically he was the kingpin of new york city wrestling of madison square garden he was the man he was the, he, and and he was also as you get into in the book right and i've you know this is so interesting to me he was the turning point in the business where the promoters really became the power brokers of wrestling because before that it had really the wrestlers and the managers were really running the show and jack curley just changed the whole game yeah no i think that's definitely true um yeah so yeah, he so and Jack Curley, a couple things about him also is he came into the business really, I think for all intents and purposes, and a name a lot of people will probably recognize, but he was working with Frank Gotch early, not early in Gotch's career, but um, uh, probably starting around like 1907, 1908, which sounds like a gajillion years ago, you know, but that was 1908 was the first match between Gotch and Hackenschmidt, which a lot of people know about when they wrestled in Chicago. And Gotch won the world championship for the first time. But so so Curly came into working. And before that, he had been a boxing promoter. He had done some work. Um, and then this is what really I thought why he could kind of bear the load of this of the story. He did a lot of work with in entertainment. He worked in different points in his career with really big names like Rudolph Valentino, the, the Castles, who were really a famous dancing couple at the time, um, uh, as well as even politicians. So this I think that com that that sort of um intersections of like sports entertainment politics right like it's all wrestling now is kind of the same stuff that wrestling really is nowadays right i mean especially when i was writing goodness in 2017 and 2018 i mean everybody was talking about kayfabe and pro wrestling and all this stuff so i think it's this idea of like where does that all come from and i think the more research i did and the more people i talked with Jack Curley's name just kept coming up over and over and over and over again. And I think he really took the business. I think like what you said, I think that's a really key point um, where it used to be these wrestlers are kind of traveling around the country, right? Organizing their own matches in maybe like a town hall or like a 200 person theater or something like that. And they would get challenges from the crowd or they might know somebody that they could have a match with locally. When the promoters came along, they really organized it into more of like a traveling show you know uh, where they would have wrestlers working a circuit of towns typically with predetermined finishes things like that you know predetermined storylines things like that um, but where i hope what i hope i accomplish in the book too is show where that line between um predetermined staged fake whatever you want to call it and quote unquote reality was really blurry back then you know and i think in some ways i think it's still really blurry um, and I think that really applies, honestly, when in my mind, if you want to have a long talk some other time about all kinds of sports, I think it plays into. And I think you see, too, 
And this is why I think America um, wrestling is such an important part of American pop culture and sports history is a lot of sports at the time back then were, there were a lot of questions about, you know, right. You know, did this guy take a fall? Was that guy paid off? You know, was that game on the level, all that stuff. It wasn't just wrestling, but wrestling really came out of that. Um, as it's a very unique, um, thing that nothing else has even begun to match nowadays, I think. Yeah, because those were that was the days of the Black Sox scandal, and God knows that boxing was dirty as hell. You know, in some ways, it still is. I mean, there's still to this day there are fights where people are scratching their heads and wondering, and there's shadows cast, and it just seems like wrestling just kind of leaned into that. Wrestling at a certain point, which your book covers really well, there was that point in time where they basically just said, "We're gonna just stop." even trying to pretend that it's real, which is funny to me because you'll always hear people say, well, wrestling, you know, if you watch it in the seventies, is much more realistic than it is today and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, have you though? Have you watched it? Like, if you've ever been in a real fight, like I think a lot of it was supported by the fact that a lot of people maybe weren't MMA educated like they are today, or maybe it was easier to fool certain people. I don't know, but you know, I love Harley Race. I love Dusty Rhodes. I love Jack Briscoe, who's NCAA heavyweight champion and maybe the greatest legitimate, you know, wrestler to ever hold a world title. But but you can clearly tell they're working in the ring. But the difference is when you go back to like, let's say, whatever footage there is of say teens and twenties, you know, you can really be fooled watching some of that stuff. Like the the Joe Stecker Earl Caddick match from Madison Square Garden, which you write about, which was really they really tried to make it appear to be on the level and you can watch it. It's out there and it looks very legitimate. I don't know if it was or not, but by like the end of the twenties, right by Jim Londis, Gus Sonnenberg, who's somebody that people don't talk about it any anymore, who is so important to wrestling as a performance. By the time you get into that depression era, they are full on putting on a show for you. And it's hard to understand you know, you try to get into it as best as you can. It's hard to understand the relationship between the show and the fans. Like, did they really believe anymore? Were they suspending their disbelief on purpose? What was the relationship like? Like, did they were they enjoying being worked? Did they know they were being worked? But it just changed drastically in that era. Yeah, it really did. And I think the thing I try to hit on, too, is that you know, I, I I really think that by the time you're into the mid twenties, the conventions are all there. Or, you know, and that was what struck me is that when you, even if you read about matches from maybe the late 1910s, I mean, they didn't sound that different to me than you know the matches I was watching when I was growing up. You know, if you read about it, uh, an Ed Lewis um, championship match, you know, even the ones in the twenties, you know, guys are falling out of the ring, you know, Billy Sandow is, you know, distracting the referee and then Ed Lewis is doing something untoward in the ring, you know? Um, so I, that was really interesting to me. That aspect of it is it, of, of sort of how it just was able to stay consistent. Now, again, some of the things, some things changed guys got maybe bigger, you know, things like that. Pa- people wore makeup, but even those conventions, and I don't get too much into that, but those conventions were really starting in the late thirties, early forties with guys like Jack Pfeffer, where he was really pushing hard onto the theatrical piece of it, as far as the show robes and costumes and masks and things like that. But then when you combine all that 
together, you end up with what I think we had in the 70s. The promoters found a mix that really worked. And I think, and I really tried hard to kind of not weigh in on this because, you know, fake, real, this or that. Because I, I to me, um, I think it was one, it certainly looked real enough you could buy into it. I can still watch matches and buy into them. You know what I mean? Even yes. though it's kind of like, you know, right? Like I can watch a Road Warriors match and be like, dude, that's awesome. Even right. though it's just, you know what I mean? Kind of thing. Right. Um, but I also think that in the 30s, in 20s, I think what was a little bit different is that you really didn't, if you took one wrong step with Ed Lewis, at any point, that guy could put you on the mat and probably <laughs> make you look like yes. a fool in front of an entire arena. So and yeah, did, was, and did on occasion and, when he and did it. on occasion. Yeah. And I mean, and not just Ed Lewis, but a lot, a lot of those guys. So I think the lines between show and this and that were a lot more slippery back then, because if you got on the wrong side of one of those guys on any minute, as you kind of happens in the book with guys like Dan O'Mahony and things like that, they would rough you up and, right. and maybe even worse. Or Wayne Munn. He's another one. He's like a turning point character where they're like, you know what? You don't even need to know how to wrestle. Like that was a major turning point. That's how you get in later years, the Hulk Hogan's and the, you know, and the, and the dusty Rhodes's and people like that, where it's like, we don't care what college you went to or if you have an amateur background. Look, we just want to give the fans a good show. Now, in those days, though, that was a dangerous thing to do because everybody was very skilled at wrestling and could take care of themselves. So if you had somebody that couldn't, that person had a target on their back. It's different today. You know, we're nine out of ten wrestlers probably wouldn't know what to do on a college mat. And I've even seen that with my own eyes. I've told a story before where when Kurt Angle came to WWE, there was a famous story and he's probably, he may be the most accomplished amateur wrestler to ever get into the pros. And he's in the ring and they're all working out before a show. And he gets down in the kind of the riding position, you know, and everybody's gathered around and he's just like, I dare any of you to, to turn me over anybody. And I saw this. And one of them, I'm not going to mention who it was. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But one very big, dangerous-looking WWF wrestler gets over there and standing behind him and is just standing there and not doing anything. And Kurt is like, do whatever you want. I'm, I'm My back is to you. Like, just whatever. I'm here. I'm waiting. And the guy just sheepishly goes, I have no idea what to do. I don't have the slightest idea what I'm supposed to do right now. And he was almost crying. He was so embarrassed, but that's the majority of pro wrestlers today. But back then, yeah, there was this attitude of like, yes, we're working and we're trying to make money and we're businessmen, but make no mistake. We're all wrestlers and we know what we're doing. And if we had to do this for real, we could like, that was sort of the attitude. Right. And I think, and even, you know, it's funny. Um, <laughs> And that's why, you know, it's you kind of don't I hate to even cast any sort of aspersions at anybody. I mean, some of those guys you hear guys talk about and this guy came along later. He's not in the book, but guys like Carl Gotch or guys like if and it isn't just that they could put you on the match and, you know, stretch you or whatever it is people want to say. If he had a hold of you, just a hold of like your wrist or something. I mean, he could squeeze you and probably make you feel like you were going to die. And so it's like I think that that's the kind of um athleticism and the kind of um just raw power that these some of these guys had and so you really did not mess with them but in those days by the time you get to somebody like a carl gotch let's say he's a good example to bring up because 
Because by that point, wrestlers like that were in the minority. The people that were the real shooters, that were dangerous. And it almost became a liability by that point, where it wasn't even something that promoters looked for as much. And it could almost hurt a guy's career. Because if you look at somebody like Carl Gotch, I think his career was hurt. A lot of the stories about him are about his attitude and how he was kind of condescending and he rubbed people the wrong way and he could be kind of a jerk. And I think it was because in his heart, he knew he's thinking to himself, I could destroy any one of these guys in seconds. These so-called world champions, I can make fools out of them. And I think it maybe makes people like that bitter. You know, not everybody can deal with that. Not everybody can be a Kurt Angle where you go out there and you wear the little cowboy hat and you do all the tricks and the dances and you have a great time even though you could beat the entire roster with one arm tied behind your back and your eyes closed, you know, you have to be able to live with that. So I think, but in the earlier days, that really was, they learned their lesson with the Wayne Munns. And then later on, they made the mistake again with Daniel Mahoney. They learned their lesson again, not to, not to put the belt on a performer. Yeah. And, you know, I'll say to, to one thing and to, to bring up some of the names we were talking about earlier, I had a really, uh, illuminating conversation with Craig Peters, who was a writer for Pro Wrestling Illustrated for a long time in the 70s and 80s um, for some other stuff I was doing. But we were just kind of having a conversation one night and he said something to me and it really, for me, clarified ways to think about this, about this idea that with pro wrestling, um, when you're sitting and watching a match, you always and I, and I, and I, and I'm talking more about probably in the 80s and all that era before that is that, you know, there's some things that are unequivocally real you know jimmy snooker jumped off the mat off the ropes that's real you know he did that thing he hit the mat there's physics involved in there that's all very real and you know there's things that are maybe a little staged right you know there's things that are maybe not 100 percent on the level but that line is always changing and you never really know where it is of of exactly what where you're now into fantasy a little bit and right and so when you talk about a guy like a carl Carl Gotch or Jack Briscoe, or to go all the way back, even to the fans in the 20s and 30s, a Stecker, a Lewis, an Earl Caddick, all those guys, they knew those guys were for real, right? Like you can just tell kind of by looking at them, you can tell by the way they move, you can just tell that they have right. an air of believability about them. So I think they carry that with them into the ring. And I think that that lent itself to this idea of you're always off balance, because you never really know what that guy's really doing. Like, is he really squeezing that guy's, you know, is that hammer lock got as much pressure on it as it looks like it does? Cause that guy's screaming bloody murder there. So who knows? Maybe it does, you know? So I well, think that that lent itself to that air of believability. Well, it's like one of the things that Meltzer will talk about this. And I think MMA changed a lot of this too. And the way people view things it's like, you know, for example, if you put a painful submission hold on somebody for real, like a very painful, dangerous submission hold. That's it in like a second and a half. Nobody is going to just lay there and try to withstand the pain or figure out how to get out of it and milk the crowd. Like if you have something locked in, a real true submission hold, that's it, the curtains. Like the drama is not escaping or getting out, it's avoiding it because if you really do. And he also talks about how even the idea of a three count is almost a giveaway because what you would have to do to hold a capable wrestler down, to hold them down for one second is, you know, an amazing feat that you can watch NCAA tournaments and Olympic trials where 
it happens less often than not, you know, to hold them down for three seconds. They need to be unconscious. It's the only way that you'd be able to do that. So, I mean, there's all those kind of things that go into the the performance aspect. But um, I want to talk to about how to go back even a little further than that. You cover Frank Gotch. And I think that's that's a topic that is endlessly debated to this day. I don't know, and forgive me if it's in there, but did you talk to Mike Chapman? I did talk to Mike Chapman, yeah. All I right, did. because, you know, Mike Chapman is the guy who will champion to his last breath that Frank Gotch was on the level. And then you get people that talk about, you know, how all this stuff was obviously a work and how even the Hackenschmidt match, you can tell they were working and all this. Gotch is such a mysterious figure, Frank Gotch, because... um you know, I mean, there's such conflicting views. One side views him as Babe Ruth, you know, just the most charming kind of American hero sports figure. And the other side, he's just a complete low-life con artist, sadist. So it's just like, where the heck is the truth here, you know? Yeah, you know, and I tried to kind of hit, kind of in writing about Gotch, kind of tried to, to that was kind of my lead in, I think, when I was sort of, introducing him in the book is like first of all we'll never i mean we'll never know any of can't know yeah and you can't know and and um you know i i you know as with a lot of things with wrestling and with wrestling history i suspect the truth is probably somewhere more in the middle you know um we think gotcha was a sadist you know i think that shows up in one or two books you know i think where people mention and i think even i may have used the quote where you know he kind of was a little rough on george hackenschmidt in the 1911 match um and the referee i think has a quote about you know, there are some things he did in the ring that, you know, seemed cruel. So I think that's probably where some of that comes from. But, you know, um, to, you know, to me, somebody like, it's hard to say. And and I really don't. But for me, I think what was interesting about it is that um, people could, uh, even at the time, 1906, 1907, 1908, they could say, man, wrestling's fake. One top to bottom is fake, but not Frank, not that Frank Gotch. Right. You know, and I think that to me, that's the magic. That's really the magic of it is how they accomplish that. Um, and again, that air of believability that we were talking about. Right. And he carries, I mean, 30 some thousand people come out to watch that George Hackenschmidt that, that Jack, Jack Hurley promoted in 1911. Um, that record stood. I, I mean, you'll know better than I do. I think that record stood until like the 50s or 60s or even in the late 80s. They were still only drawn 30. If you drew 30,000 people, that was like one of a kind i mean there were only a handful of matches that had done that even if you do it today it's an impressive thing that that right. only happens a few times a year you know so they were uh, doing that in 1911 um uh so yeah so that that idea of frank gotcha the way i think people invested um so much kind of patriotic belief in him and the sport itself you know and that the wrestling match when he took on hack and schmidt in 1911 i mean that was really seen as like a u.s versus russia and this uh, there's a quote in there about, you know, the stars and stripes rise or fall based on Frank Gotch, you know, and that's in like the Chicago Tribune. So, I mean, this was a sport people took very, very, very seriously at the time. Yeah, because Gotch was already a superstar even before he became world champion. So you had this guy who already was kind of considered the elite American professional wrestler. And then you had this unstoppable powerhouse. I mean, so it's almost like a wrestling angle who was recognized as the world's heavyweight champion. He's this European wrestler. He looks incredible. Like, I mean, 
you didn't see people walking around looking like George Hackenschmidt in 1911. I mean, he was, I mean, I think by, by today's standards, as crazy as it sounds, he'd be considered like a light heavyweight, but he was absolutely ripped. But there's something I've read so much about that match, including this book. And to me, it's like the holy grail of found footage. If that reel ever turns up in somebody's attic, because we know that it was filmed, that Comiskey Park match, 1911. But when you read about it, there's some something going on. There's just some weirdness, like something happened in that ring. And I don't know if it was a work or not. Just Hackenschmidt was really disturbed by something. And Hackenschmidt lived a very long life and Gotch did not. And Hackenschmidt spent that long life basically never wanting to talk about it. And whenever he did saying not nice things. So either he was keeping kayfabe to the fullest or something happened where they screwed him over or something. Um, it's just, it feels like there's a missing piece of the puzzle that we may never know. Yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, the angle that I took on it, where I landed, and you know, some people might say I'm being a little too pro George Hackenschmidt here on this, but if you read his memoir, at least he um, uh, he, he had written pretty extensively. At one point, he wrote about it, and it was in I think it was serialized in a couple magazines, but it, it, it's also been collected into a book that he ended up never publishing. But there's copies of it floating around, and the way he tells the story is um and a lot of people might know this but that he had injured his knee in a training match and i mean we can talk about this all day really honestly but so that even that injury is disputed because you know at the time he was wrestling with a guy named ben roller who some people might know it's just a training match and i think there was an accident on the mat and he fell and hackenschmidt stretched his knee now if you read like luthez's book add at a wrestler named Ad Santel, who was another great wrestler from that time, dangerous guy, was a promoter in Oakland. He claims Gotch paid him off to go injured, right? Hackenschmidt's knee. I seriously doubt it. Do I know the truth? And obviously nobody knows the truth. But what in the end of the day, Hackenschmidt goes into the ring with the knee injury. And I think if you try to, and this is something I really tried hard with the book. I really hope I accomplished it. Is that if you put yourself in Hackenschmidt's place, here's this guy, by all accounts, incredibly intelligent. He wrote books about philosophy and, you know, all that he was deeply invested in sort of personal fitness and all this stuff. And here he is going into the ring, has already had a long storied career for the biggest match of his life, 35,000 people, right? In this, and here his knees shot. And he knows it. I mean, he knows what his body can and can't do. And he's going into the ring with this guy who may or may not be a pretty sadistic guy you know and he's got these big bandages wrapped around his knee he's got to go walk out there to basically... and, and he's also he's also not the cultured refined individual that hackenschmidt is he's more of a hooligan you know that's right and you know last time and they had their match three years ago again depending on who you believe a little bit you know got scratched his face and may or may not have had chemicals in his hair that you know got on the hackenschmidt skin and things like that now how, who's the it's he said she said stuff End of the day, though, Hackenschmidt's going in there with a blown out knee, tough against a tough guy who's he knows is going to not give him a break. And Gotch doesn't give him a break. You know, Gotch goes right after the knee, takes him down. That's a, and it was probably the worst 10 minutes of George Hackenschmidt's life. You know what I mean? And that's how he ended his career. Yeah. And the crazy thing, and you mentioned it in the book, is how there were people that asked him, you know, we understand that you were, it was fight or flight. 
But this is a two out of three falls match, as they all were back then. And this was the first fall. Like, why didn't you just give up, concede the fall? Hackenschmidt conceded the entire match. Now, in those days, for people that may not know, if when you did these multi-fall matches, it wasn't like today where they just keep going. You had the fall, and then everybody went back to their locker rooms and took a break, took a rest. 15 minutes, 20 minutes later, whatever, you came out again for the second fall. So he would have had an opportunity to at least try to recover. But instead of just saying, I concede the fall, he just conceded the whole match and just walked out. Now that's so that's the 1908 match, right? So I think oh, that right. that okay. was the, oh, that's the, the first so the first time Gotch Hackens and, and Hackenschmidt wrestled in 1908. Right. They wrestled for like an hour on the mat. And they're having a and this is the match where I think that Hackenschmidt later claimed, you know, got scratched him and he kind of was rough. And because American wrestling was a lot rougher than the European wrestling that Hackenschmidt had, had come out of. And he said, Gotch fought dirty and all this stuff. Some of which may is probably a little bit true. Uh, anyway, so yeah, but you're right. After that hour, I think what ended up happening is I think Hackenschmidt got thrown to the mat at one point and was afraid he was going to get really hurt. And again, I think the thing too, putting yourself in his shoes is this was a guy who had spent his life, from all accounts, he was a physical fitness um, maniac. And so he knew his body in and out. And I think that he was afraid he was going to get a permanent injury that he didn't want to sustain in that match. And that's partially why he gave it up. But he was humiliated. And I think, again, after the 1911 match, the reporters walk in and they say, there's Gott Schmidt, uh, Hackenschmidt sitting there crying in his towel. I mean, this was a proud right. guy who was That's absolutely wild. humiliated in front of an entire nation of people. And that match, you know, as much as we, it's talked about today still, it's amazing that it is, but it's like treated as this match of the century. It also kind of almost killed wrestling because of the fallout from it. And all these shenanigans just had people like just kind of wanting to give up on wrestling and thinking it was a big sham. But at the same time, Right. Isn't that match and the promotion of that match really what put Jack Curley on the map? Like he'd been promoting already for years, but like that's what gave him all that leverage and power was the fact that he'd been the promoter of the so-called match of the century. I do think that probably helped and hurt him a little bit. He ends up leaving Chicago right after that. You know, and it really does get all this conversation we're just having for me. That was what that that was to me why I think that question of fake in quotation marks, real in quotation marks. It's a bit of a red herring. Like, was that match on the level? Probably. It probably was. Was it really, though? Because Hackenschmidt goes in there, he's got one leg, you know. Right. And it feels right, like so a work. Like, like, everything we know about like wrestling work, today, right. it feels like it was an angle that they did. Right, and um, I think that there's a quote in there where the chief of police for Chicago, because there was a whole thing around betting being called off and the, the police got involved. And he says, look, if this thing was, if this thing had been faked, it would have been more exciting. Right. And that's probably true. You know, there's probably a lot of truth to that. So I think that, um, right. So I, I, you know, and again, I, I, I kind of half think this is my personal theory here is that I think after that match, I think what Jack Curley realized is like, look, we need to spread this. And, and and this is, I'm sure Steve and Mark and other guys would have opinions on this too, is we need more people, more names. We need to spread some of the ta the main events around. We can't have it all be just, we can't have the entire future of pro wrestling resting on George Hackenschmidt's knee. It's a, just a little too risky. So I think that they got more into the priest, into the, kind of predetermined finishes and by the end of the decade 1917 1918 you're seeing like the Zabiscos and uh Stecker 
and these guys going around the country, trading the heavyweight championship amongst themselves, having these like flat out exciting matches that people right. were just flocking to in different countries. So I think they had kind of figured out like this model, this model of building up two great big guys and having this match that ends up being a bummer. It's not going to work. Yeah. And you get into it a little too, because we all know from fall guys, which is like the text that we always had all these years. It was like the only thing, but we all know how unreliable that is. I mean, the stories are crazy. They range from either that, uh, what's the author's name? Uh, uh, Griffin, right? Marcus Griffin. Uh, Marcus Griffin. It ranges from Marcus Griffin was in Tutsmont's pocket to Marcus Griffin didn't even exist. And it was just a pseudonym for Tutsmont. Like we don't even know that much because there's so little evidence. And this is true that Marcus Griffin even existed. Like he's like this weird phantom figure, but that book you can't really rely on. And that's where we get the whole idea of what the gold dust trio was, which they didn't even call them that when they were together. And, you know, we we think today, okay, they invented the modern style of pro wrestling. Tootsmont was this visionary, and they came up with packaged shows and heels and baby faces and finishes. But do we even know that for sure? Especially if it's only if one of the guys cl- that's in that group is the one who is claiming it. How do we even know? Yeah, I would. I if anybody is interested in Paul guys, if you haven't read it, um, it is a great book. Now, from my understanding, Marcus Griffin definitely was a real person. His brother. I, going to get this wrong a little bit but i think his brother ended up going on to uh start the national inquirer somehow the newspaper that went on to become the national Inquirer. but yeah yeah, he was a sports writer um but yeah i mean it's a great book but i'll tell you the thing that's kind of inspired me is because i so i loved wrestling history even at the time i was so interested in it and and that's really the only book you can get and i thought man no offense to the book but because it was written in the night in 1937 for a different audience at a different time it's tough to get through that book. You know, it's tough to read that book cover to cover, right? So I thought, you know, it would really be fun if we, if there was a book that, um, and and I'm not going to, you know, bag on Fall Guys at all because it's, it's, it was absolutely kind of the holy grail of books. Cause it's like you said, it's you know, all the information that we had to go on in a long time, but I kind of really wanted a book that might be an entertaining read and even not necessarily just be for wrestling fans and correct some of that stuff too, that you're talking about, or at least put it in context. You know, if you really want to kind of, irritate a wrestling historian bring up the gold dust trio you know and that idea that like you know people kind of spout that off as if it's a common truth nowadays but that probably was just tootsmont telling marcus griffin hey call us the gold dust trio or him reinventing history to sort of fit his model of it at the time right and you you know so much of it even in those days was show business and even the fact that if you look at the promoters like for example I may be wrong about this, but there wasn't a ton of crossover in terms of like, look, a lot of the old promoters that promoted wrestling, they promoted other things, but they tended to be entertainment things. They weren't really sports related things. There weren't a lot of guys that were promoting, for example, boxing and wrestling together. And maybe that was because of the stink of wrestling. You didn't want to be associated with it. Usually maybe you fell from grace as a boxing promoter then became wrestling. But you look at somebody like Ray Fabiani who promoted opera and Jack Pfeffer and these guys, and they were promoters of entertainment events and spectaculars. And even in in later years, like people like Jim Crockett senior and Nick Goulas, and they were promoting big band concerts and music and roller derby and all these things. 
it tells you a lot about wrestling because maybe they weren't going to come out and say it the way Vince McMahon did, but behind the scenes, they treated it like show business, not like a sport. I, I yeah, I agree with that one hundred percent. And I think um, even if you look at Vince McMahon uh, Jr., he's from my memory, he started off as kind of a promoter, quote unquote. Yeah, I think when he was doing concerts in Connecticut, you know, when he first kind of was getting involved in the promotion business. But even that idea, like, what is a promoter? It's such sort of this strange, like, moving target of a a word. But what I thought was really interesting about that is um, somebody was dictating these matches, right? If, if a match was predetermined, somebody was coming up with the finish. And I mean, and that's up and down the card, really. And you might have seven or eight matches or somebody was saying, hey, where, you know, you should really wear this costume. Hey, you know what would really go over? Do this. Now, who that person was, whether it was Ray Fabiani, who was the promoter in, you know, Philadelphia, was it Jack Curley? Still, we don't really know that. I kind of question it, though, because like you said, they had their hands in so many pies I kind of feel like they didn't have time to be dictating the finish of the opening match on their card on a Wednesday night. You know what I mean? But somebody was doing it. Um, and I, that, that is, again, I think it's a little bit of a mystery. I think it's a little bit lost time, but um, endlessly fascinating to me. Endlessly fascinating. It is because it, it's all about the, also the evolving role of the booker, because then you think to yourself, well, where did bookers come from? Because for example, one thing that wrestling has lost and it's something that all of entertainment really has lost, but it all grew together. Like if you, if you look at the early years, you know, this is another area that I, I study closely. There's the early years of pop culture and American entertainment in music, in theater, in every, in, in just on, on the stage, in wrestling, you had agencies who booked you. So every, in, in, in some cases they were in unions like musicians, for example, and you'd be like, hey, we need a drummer. Okay, we'll call the agency and we need a drummer that can play this kind of music for this type of engagement. Okay, I got a guy for you. I'm going to send him out on such and such a date. And that's really what a wrestling booker was. Whereas today we think of them as the person who's writing the creative, you know, the booker was literally a booker. So you had a booking agency where it's like, we have the talent and we are going to, and in some cases they were promoters too, but in some cases they weren't. Like Tootsmont had the Manhattan booking agency where, we control these wrestlers. If you want to have them in your club, you got to work with us and we're going to send them to you. And this guy's going to go over this guy and that guy's going to go over that guy. And it was really a completely separate branch of the business that does not exist anymore. It just got folded in. Whereas now you have guys that, you know, the promoter and the booker sometimes is almost the same thing. Or if you do have bookers, they're not book they're not booking the wrestlers in a traditional sense they're booking them in the sense of deciding the storylines and things but i think that's something in wrestling that it that was very a very important component that has been dead for at least 40 50 years now yeah and i'll tell you if anybody gets a chance i'll put a plug in for the university of notre dame uh so that's where they house the pfeffer collection which was uh jack pfeffer who was a wrestling murky again a kind of a murky guy he was a promoter he was a booker he was a talent scout he was kind of a, kind of a jack of all trades but he obsessively kept records and he kept every piece of correspondence that he got in his life and all of it thank goodness has ended up at the university of notre dame but what's really illuminating about that um, when I went there, at least I was looking for sort of this, the skeleton key or the Rosetta stone of like, it's going to, the, the, the mysteries are all going to be solved if you just read these letters, but really what they are, 
90% of them are guys saying, Hey, like I'm a wrestler. I weigh 280 pounds. I can grow a mustache. Uh, I've got long hair and I'm going to be in Connecticut uh, area for a week. Can you get me some matches? And he'll right. say something like, yeah, he's like, yeah, look, if you can work heel, you can go up here and you can go and you can talk to, you know, the, whoever the promoter was in Connecticut and he'll get you some matches for a week. And then a lot, of, it's a lot of that. It's a lot of like, Hey, this promoter didn't, they stiffed me 25 bucks. And then Jack trying to collect 25 bucks for his wrestler, or maybe not trying to collect the money. So it's just, you really see the business of it. And questions like, you know, do you have a car? Can you get the, like, it's, so it's just like, what would determine success in the business in that era was like, could you even get to the show on time? And it, your ring robe's going to be clean and are you know can you grow a mustache and it was just like that kind of stuff it's absolutely fascinating and humanizing for these guys so humanizing. yeah and it reminds you too of how much they truly were independent contractors in those days nowadays that's like lip service to say that when you have guys that only work for one company or in those days most of the wrestlers were closer to what today we would call independent wrestlers Except the difference is that nowadays, and since Vince McMahon sort of demolished this entire kind of ecosystem, those guys are left to fend for themselves. Like there aren't in the old days, they would have been able to say, oh, I need some bookings. I want to work for the next month. I'm going to talk to this agency and they're going to book me out and find promoters who want to work with me. Now everything's got to be one to one. Now it's just the wrestlers hustling for themselves, reaching out to promoters directly you know, whereas back then there was this middleman, right? I don't know why I harp on that idea. It's so interesting to me because it reminds me of things like vaudeville. And like I said, me, you know, things like music, like in the movie, Some Like It Hot, that's the whole contingency of the plot is that the musician characters are, they go to the booking agency because they're trying to escape from these gangsters and they're trying to get booked anywhere. And the agent winds up booking them, you know, in an all girls band, but you know, those we don't have the that middleman anymore in wrestling. Yeah, no, I think I, I know and I agree with you. It's really interesting to me too. And I think that partially the reason it's interesting, or I think what's important about it is that wrestling was show business yeah. back then. And and I don't know, and it and I, I I don't I don't know. I don't even like to opine on it nowadays because I don't really know anything about it. But at least in that era, it was it was definitely show business and um and I, and I agree with you 100% about the kind of analogy with the independent wrestlers nowadays. But I also think the important thing about that, too, is that you could make a living as a wrestler. I don't know that you can do that nowadays as an independent wrestler because you can, work, you, you can work the San Francisco, you know, uh, Sacramento circuit for a week or two. And then you could go down. to. And I know this is even before the territories. This is before the, you know, with the sort of vaulted days of the, the territories. But you could go, then you could go down to Los Angeles and work for Ludaro for a month. And then you could, you know, write, you know, all the while you're writing to these different promoters around the country and trying to get business or writing to a booking office and saying, hey, I want to go to the Northeast. Can you get me there? You even see things like, hey, I need to go take care of my mom for a month and I'm going to be down in the Georgia area. Can you get me some jobs around the gym? And that's what this these guys' jobs were being professional wrestlers and they were good at it. They knew how to entertain the crowd. They knew how to keep themselves in shape. If they got hurt, I mean, they were just, they were out of work basically. Yeah, because some of, those, some of those promoters, even going into the territory days, they had no booking arm of their organization. All they were was, okay, these are my towns, but I need to rely on, like, let's say if you're in Texas in those days, you had to rely on Morris Siegel up in Houston. Didn't matter where you were in Texas. Like if you wanted to put on a wrestling show and you didn't want to get run out of business, 
you had to deal with this guy to send you your wrestlers. Now, Morris Siegel might also have a promotional wing of his business, which he did, where he used those wrestlers, but he also booked them out. And I think the last, the dying days of that really was when you saw what would happen with the WWF and how they treated Andre the Giant. I feel like that was the last gasp where Andre the Giant, they owned his, I don't know if it was a contract, whatever it was, and they would book him out until Vince finally, you know, in the mid 80s said, no, 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 you just work for us now. This concept is is a dated one and we're getting rid of it. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and that's talk about a holy grail. I mean, if somebody could do a, a really um, well-researched book and if somebody could get Vince McMahon to sit down and have a really convers- real conversation, I mean, that guy, I would love to. I mean, he knows where all the bodies are buried. And I think to your point, I think probably why he was so effective at what he did Um and probably why a guy like Ted Turner, why he beat those. Vince McMahon is a dyed in the wool wrestling promoter, from what I can tell, right? Like he comes from his dad was a wrestling promoter. He grew up in that area. He probably knew some of those these old school guys we're talking about, Morris Siegel. I mean, just he, he did. I, I've picked his brain on some of these people. Yeah. He knew he knew Ray Fabiani. He, I mean, he knew Tuxmont. I mean, crazy come on. stories. And so he, I mean, dyed in the wool. Probably vaudevillian. I don't know if that's going too far, but that guy knows. And and I think that when the time came and he decided what he was going to do with just, you know, taking over the business, I hate to put it that way, but he knew how to do it. He knew where the contracts were that he needed to go after. He needed the arenas that he needed to lock down that were going to then shut some of these other people out of out of the out of the business. And he just knew how to kind of go and just knock them off piece by piece. And he was so effective at it. Um, yeah, it's just incredible. Yeah, he is more than he'd ever like to admit because he'd hate to have himself described that way. You know, he of being. I'm like, sure oh, he would, I'm but sure he, he did. Would. He came from that world, and he's he will always be a part of that world, even though he was the the iconoclast. But he still came out of that world. But yeah, like I remember him telling me again. This speaks to the showbiz aspects. How his family were very close friends at one time with the Feld family, which were the the people who bought the Ringling Brothers Circus. You know. And so there was a lot of crossover in those worlds. Like we are promoters of entertainment, whatever you want to call it. But one guy I wanted to talk about too, especially before we run out of time. I mean, I feel like I want to do like a series with you. This is just fantastic is I want to get back to Sonnenberg if we can for a minute, because like with Joe Stecker, those two guys are probably the most criminally under discussed people as far as wrestlers go, uh, famous wrestlers, because like, you have wrestling performance before Gus Sonnenberg and after Gus, Gus Sonnenberg. And the reason is he was the first guy, first of all, he was the first like footballer to really come in. I know Wayne Munn had been, but to really come in and be a success in wrestling, which is now such a common thing. And he was the first person to really popularize the idea of like, we're not just going to lay here on the mat and roll around. Like there's going to be constant motion I'm going to run at you. I'm going to knock you down. I'm going to pick you up and throw you. I'm going to, you know, and I don't know if he was bouncing off to run in the ropes, but I think he was. And you had, you know, and then right after him comes Dan O'Mahony, the Irish whip, literally whipping people into the ropes. And you start getting dynamic movement in matches. So it isn't just why they call them dynamite Gus Sonnenberg. So it isn't just holds anymore, you know? Yeah, I think I personally think that's right. I always get kind of afraid of ever using the word first 
for anything right, because right. as soon as you say somebody was the first, you know, you Steve could say Johnson will, Steve Johnson will find you, you know, for example. Oh, they will. That's why I like to say I avoid it. I avoid right. it by saying popularized. But he popularized. I do, popularized I think that I do think Gus was. Um, I think it's probably fair for the sake of conversation to say he was the first. But I, I'll tell you, I am. Um, I if I if I could have, I would have written a book. I would have just done a Gus Sonnenberg biography. I, I, for some reason, and I don't know if I'm, I'm not really sure why I just fell in love with his story. And I, I just really fell in love with him. I just thought he was such an interesting uh, character and what he did. And he just embodies what I was so interested in writing about, I think. So yeah, you know, he comes out, he's, I mean, he, and he's unlike Wayne Munn, I think would had a good year. He'd had a good couple of years in college, you know, Gus, was a professional football player with the Providence Steamrollers, maybe another team or two. And he was a pretty well-known um, professional and college football player. Yeah, Dartmouth. Yeah, Dartmouth. And then he uh, gets brought into, <laughs> excuse me, wrestling through the, <clears throat> the Boston promotion um, with Paul Bowser. And this, you know, however you want to, the storyline or that was around him was he was really unbeatable, you know, and he won 50 some straight matches, whatever it was. I don't know what the exact number is, but became the world heavyweight champion. Um, and yeah, he popularized this um, football tackle. But but again, to kind of maybe go back even a little bit to this idea of what we were talking about with show business is as soon as that football tackle caught on. And I try to kind of chronicle this in the book. Every wrestling promoter in every town in the country had a wrestler like Gus Sonnenberg doing a football tackle, you know, and again, it, it shows you too, I think, like you said, how these little tweaks made such a big difference back then, this idea of just being more in motion and the football tackle, which now if you look at it, people will be like, oh, that's so stupid. But it's <laughs> at the time, I mean, that was re really revolutionary and little weird things, you know, two, two quick notes I'll bring up real quick of stuff we talked about, you know, the three count. Uh, that we were talking about before, right? All think about the, all of the drama of professional wrestling. Imagine if we didn't have a three count, but if you Steve Yoey to give him credit and Scott Teal and those guys, some of the research they did around a famous match that happened with Jim Londas and J Joe Savoldi, where there was some controversy because it used to like just be a one count, right? Like you have to use to get the guy's shoulders on the mat, but like there was some wrestling. Yeah. right. And there was some controversy around a finish that had happened with the Savoldi Londas match in 19. I'm going to say 33. I'm pretty sure that was year it was, but anyway, they think, and I'm probably correctly is that that's where the three count came from. And that then the referee have to county out loud and slap the mat. So it wasn't like they could just count it in their head, but imagine how that changed you know, the, the, the whole future of wrestling. If we hadn't had a three count, man, we wouldn't have matches. You know what I mean? Like those are the best. The guy kicks out yeah. you know, right it, before it, the third hand comes down. It reminds me of when I watched the Ken Burns baseball documentary and he talks about how much of baseball history is hinged on, you know, the exact measurements of the baselines and how many plays would have been different if they decided this has to be this length instead of that length. And it also brings me back to my ultimate dream, which this book would be almost like the script for it. If anybody ever could do a serious Ken Burns style, even Ken Burns himself, treatment of this, I mean, what an incredible documentary that would be. Yeah. You don't even need to get, look, if the modern stuff is too goofy and silly and crass for you, fine. Just focus on this era, and I would be perfectly content and happy to see something like that in, in a documentary. I, I'd be I'd be right there with you. I, and I will say quickly, you brought up earlier, not to jump around, but the Gotch 
the footage of the Gotch Hackenschmidt match from 1911, right? We know it was filmed. This is one of the things that might make a documentary hard. There's just not that much footage, but um, I actually tried to track that footage down. I did the best I could for anybody who's looking behind, who, who's coming behind me to do more work. Um, and I ended up getting in touch with, there's a really fantastic movie. If any, have a chance to see it called Dawson Frozen Time about Dawson, Alaska, right? And they would get movies shipped up there, right? They, they were like the end of the line for film <laughs> distribution. They'd get stuff a year after. But anyway, when they were done with it, they would throw it in like the water or whatever. And they ended up, they would bury it like in a pit or things like that. So anyway, they ended up excavating a gigantic pit that was full of this lost film footage from the early 1900s that had gone up to Dawson. Uh, and I contacted the filmmakers when I saw it. And I was just like, please tell me, right? Like that somehow the newsreel of Hackenschmidt Gotch ended up in that pit and has been, and it turns out it wasn't, unfortunately, but they were really nice. They were great. They got right back to me. And yeah, so I think our last best hope of finding Gotch Hackenschmidt has maybe disappeared unless it's hiding in somebody's basement somewhere. i'll never give up it could be in someone's attic like i remember when i was a kid and i first took an interest in this stuff like let's say 30 years ago or more um the earliest known footage this is pre-youtube so this was like bootleg vhs tapes you'd find the earliest known footage to exist of a pro wrestling match was stecker versus Caddick, madison square garden 9 january 1920 when Stecker regains the title. That was the earliest. Now, in the intervening decades, there's earlier stuff that's been found. Like we have, there's earlier things. I think we even have a, one or two matches from the 19th century now. I don't know if it's Paul Ponce or it might be Ernst Rober or what, Thebaud Bauer, one of those guys previously mentioned um, that does exist. So you you just really, truly never know. There's there's stuff earlier than Gotch Hackenschmidt that we now have. So right. it could happen. You never know. I mean, they, didn't they just find the footage from the 1917 World Series? Wasn't there just more footage from that found within the past couple of years? So yeah, you never, you never know. And history is always changing. And you're just trying to kind of do it the best you can and catch what you can while you're in the moment, you know? Yeah, exactly. And man, you have done this book is you've done your homework, and this book is is a treasure. Like th this book really belongs in uh in the conversation when people talk about the important wrestling books of early wrestling history this is a must-have and i mean i say that because this is the kind of book whenever books like this come out i jump on them because especially if they're well done because it's something that really needs to be explored and needs to be done you know you know it's it's before living memory and it seems like prehistoric to us now because the wrestling business has changed so much. And so it doesn't have that nostalgia to it. Like, so people aren't drawn to write about it as much like, Oh, I want to write about the wrestling I remember, or, you know, like a, you know, or the a wrestler I was a fan of, but this is, you know, this is, I mean, my grandfather wasn't even born yet when this stuff was going on, you know? So it's yeah. so important, so important to do. I appreciate that. And I will say too, I hope that for younger fans, people who might just know wrestling from today, or even just recent history. I do hope that they find that I, I really tried hard to make this feel contemporary. I mean, I think that it has so much resonance, like I said, in other sports, I think, especially in things like gambling coming back, it's like, are you serious? Like yeah. we can gamble now? Like that's insane. <laughs> right. Like, um, Full circle. it's like, it's like really what decade are we living in here? Um, but yeah, I mean, it has, like, I hope it has resonance. Um, and so I, and I hope it doesn't feel like a dusty old antiquated book. So I do hope it's a fun read. And I really hope that, um, you know, fans of all different kinds of sports can get something out of it. So I appreciate your time. I really appreciate your interest very, very much. 
my pleasure. And for people that want to get it, I mean, other than the usual, I mean, suspects like uh, I'm assuming Amazon and things like that. But is there a website? Is there other kinds of contact points you'd want people to know about? Yeah, you can check out University of Missouri. They're the, the publisher who and I think they did a great job. It's a nice hardback and they they great paper stock. They really did a beautiful job printing it and I couldn't be happier with that. And um, yeah, anywhere you get books, you can check it out. And I uh, just really appreciate everybody checking it out, giving it a chance. And thanks for your Thanks for everything. Great. My pleasure. I'm going to say again, the title of the book is Ballyhoo, the Roughhousers, Con Artists, and Wild Men Who Invented Professional Wrestling by John Langmead. John, thanks so much for doing this. We absolutely are going to have to do another one because I'm not done. This has been great. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate your time very much. There you have it, folks. My conversation with John Langmead. And again, the book is called Ballyhoo, The Roughhousers, Con Artists, and Wild Men Who Invented Professional Wrestling. And I think for a lot of the listeners of this show, that is going to be a must-buy and a must-read. Highly, highly recommended. Thanks, John, for being on the show. Next week's episode, we are looking at episode number 107, in which I'll be talking to one of my colleagues, from Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Kristen Ashley. It's going to be a conversation about women's wrestling that I think you're going to enjoy. And in the weeks to come here on Shut Up and Wrestle, we have other special guests on the way. I'm also proud to say that Steve Johnson, the writer and historian, will be coming to Shut Up and Wrestle. I've also got an interview planned with wrestling journalist and longtime fan Dominic D'Angelo. I've got a few more good ones, a few big ones, in the works. I don't want to say anything yet until it is firmly official, but do keep listening to the show. There's so many ways you can find it. Our website is suawpod.com. You can also find it wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts for the time being until it goes away, Podcast Addict, Podbean, and many, many other places. Spotify, of course, I like to get them there. And while you're at it, join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. If you'd like to contribute in some small financial way to the show, as it is a free show if you're enjoying it and you want to give a little tip, you can go to my Twitter page, Brian R. Solomon. You'll see a link at the top for contributions via Venmo and Cash App. If you're interested in contributing via PayPal, you can find me at Solomon at yahoo.com. And thank you to those who have already contributed. In addition to that, some of the other projects that I work on, there is the Wrestling News from Arcadian Vanguard. Every single morning, your news update on the world of professional wrestling from the Arcadian Vanguard team. Find it at thewrestlingnews.com, also at the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. My books, one of them, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, as well as Superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. You can get those wherever books are sold, and I have a limited supply of signed copies. If you'd like to buy one, you can get at me via email at Solomon at yahoo.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can also find me on Facebook. My author page is Brian Solomon Writer. 
And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author webpage on the World Wide Web. Also, the magazines I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, get it at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes Magazine, you can get it at insidetheropesmagazine.com. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and leaving you with the old Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. And indeed, we have been as wrestling fans as of late. So long, wrestling fans. Hey,